And Father, we uh, thank you that you do love us, that you are kind and generous and gracious and merciful. We thank you for um, what we celebrated last week um, from your, your life to your death to your resurrection. And um, we pray this morning that we would be living and studying in light of that. And um, Lord, we pray also that um, you would open our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit to hear from you today. And I pray that as I teach, Lord, um, as I share this morning from your word, uh, that my words would be your words, that my heart would be in line with yours. And I, I wouldn't speak something that would come from me or that would bring any recognition to me, but that this whole time would be about you. So, um, Lord, we love you. We thank you for, for drawing us together, even though we're, we're miles apart. You've drawn us together by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we would humbly ask in Jesus' name this morning that um, as we experience that unity, we would be positioned um, together to experience your love as Paul prayed for the Ephesians in, in greater ways than we ever could hope to experience it on our own. So Lord, this time is yours. We are yours. Please reveal yourself to us today for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, um, in a paper Bible or on your phone, you can open it up to, to Matthew. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 22 this morning. And uh, prior to the Easter season, we had been working through a series on the parables, actually started in January, and um, we're still continuing through those. Um, and so we're, 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 we're going to pick back up with a, with a parable this morning from Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Um, before I read that, though, um, I thought it would be good and appropriate and helpful um, for us to just make a few observations about our God, a few uh, truths about, um, about our God this morning that um, may, may be helpful to you um, as, we, as we study this particular passage. Um, and, and really helpful for any passage that, that we study. But things just to keep in mind about him as, as we get into Matthew 22 this morning. And um, these truths are found all throughout Scripture. Um, I'll share a few Scriptures as I, as I work through them, but they're found all throughout Scripture. And the first one is this. Um, I think we should, we'd be wise and good to remember that our God is good. Um, he, he is just so good to us. He acts in ways that are, are good and, and holy. And in Psalm 100, the psalmist writes, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. We see that from, from Easter to providing for one another, to, to getting gifts, to, to all, all these different ways. God is just so, so good. The second is this, God is perfect. You know, we, we sin, we make mistakes, um, we make utter messes of our lives from time to time, but God never does. He is absolutely, in an unparalleled way, perfect. And the scripture speaks to that. In, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is perfect. He never does anything wrong. He also... Third, third thing is God is just. He always does the right thing. He, he always acts in a just way. In, in um, Deuteronomy chapter 32, we find this. He is the rock. He, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. 
Now, the thing to keep in mind is that God is bigger and more powerful than we are. Um, Psalm 147 uh, says this, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. He, he is so far above and beyond, so much bigger, so much more powerful than us that we can't even possibly begin to comprehend how, how, how much greater he is. Another thing to keep in mind, God is both, both knowable and unknowable at the same time. Um, Isaiah speaks to this in Isaiah 55. He says, my, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. And, and Jesus said this in, in John 17, 3, when he was praying, he said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Isaiah saying God's thoughts are so much higher than ours, we can't even begin to comprehend them. And Jesus is saying that we can know him. It's, we can, he's so much bigger, we can't possibly know him, and we can know him at the same time time. Finally, um, I thought it would be good for us to, to keep in mind um, as we continue our studies on the parables, um, why we were created. And um, we all, I think, get confused about this. I know I get confused about this all the time. Um, but we were created for God and for his glory. John Piper, it's a little longer um, quote, but it's important. John Piper put it this way. He said, in other words, the goal of God in creating Israel, namely for his glory, is not a goal that took effect only at that point in history. It is the goal that guided his creation and governance of man from the very start. Man was created from the beginning in God's image, that he might image forth God's glory. He was to multiply and fill the earth so that the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the sea. And ever since the fall of man into sin, people have refused to align themselves with this divine goal. But all God's acts have been aimed at seeing it through. So it is not just Israel but we whom God created for his glory. This is why the New Testament again and again calls us to do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Let your light shine among men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is not an admonition to God to do God a favor. It's a command to align ourselves, our lives, with his eternal goal. He created us for his glory. God's great aim in creating and governing the world is that he be glorified. I created you for my glory. I formed you. I made you, said the Lord. We must keep this in mind um, as we study the parables as we go to work, as we care for our spouses and children and friends and family, 
the world doesn't revolve around us. Sometimes I think when we walk through the Easter season, we make that mistake. We think that it's all about us, that God came to, to the whole point of everything was that God came to save us, that we are somehow the, the center of, of everything in existence. And it's not that God didn't save you or doesn't save. It's not that that's unimportant. But God does not revolve around meeting our needs. He is not our slave. Rather, we revolve around him. We exist to serve him. His existence is not focused on providing for our well-being, our gratification, or our exaltation as ends in themselves, but our existence is to focus on providing for his exaltation. We were created to bring him glory or honor or positive attention and recognition, however you want to put it, but we were created for him. And th this is a real challenge for us, right? It, it, it strikes at our, our pride, our, our self-centeredness, our, our perverted drive um, of self-preservation and provision. It, it all leads us, all those things lead us to the conclusion that life is about us. But one of the secrets of the kingdom is that life is not about us. That seems scary and intimidating and slightly imposing, but if placed in the right context, it is supremely freeing and liberating. If we were serving a malevolent God, one that sought our destruction and despair, we would be in trouble. It might be scary if the God whom we serve was something other than perfect in every way, even, even just slightly off in any seemingly insignificant way, we would be in peril. But our God is not. As we just mentioned, he's perfect. He is good and kind and just and righteous and benevolent. So we have nothing to fear if we trust and submit to him. But it is because of his perfection, because of his righteousness, we have everything to fear if we oppose him. Because opposing him puts us on the wrong side in the battle of right and wrong, good and evil. Now, with that being said, um, let's, in that light, let's read our text for today. Um, it's from Matthew 22, and we're going to look at verses 1 uh, to 14 this morning. And, and this is what Jesus teaches. It says, Matthew says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited, invited to the banquet to tell them to come but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle ha have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. 
So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So, um, so what's going on here? First, um, we must remember to whom Jesus is speaking. Um, Jesus is still um, speaking, speaking to people in the temple courts, the Jewish temple courts in Jerusalem. Specifically, he's been directing his comments to um, the chief priests and the elders, to the, the religious leadership of the day. And, and we find that in ch the chapter before this in verses 23 and 45 to 46. And then following this, we find that, um, again, the, the people who were Jesus or Matthew records responding to Jesus's words are, are these religious Jewish leaders. And um, so he's talking um, to these, these people who are less interested in the truth of what Jesus is saying than they are in trapping him arresting him, and eventually just getting rid of him. They, they weren't interested in learning about the kingdom of God, but rather they were looking to advance their own interests, their own rule, their own reign, their own power. But Matthew tells us in verse 2 that Jesus in this parable uh, is, is trying to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. And several weeks ago, we discussed how the kingdom uh, of heaven um, is, not, is not just what we think of about eternity. Like when we die here and we, we go to heaven, it's, it is that, but it's, it's more. It, it also speaks to Jesus's rule and reign in the here and now. That, that when a, a person surrenders their life to Jesus, they come into God's kingdom at that moment and, and his kingdom grows. And so we... In, in one respect, we are waiting for the kingdom to be fully established when, when Jesus comes back. But in another sense, it's already here. These men, these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus and to get rid of Jesus. And so he tells them this parable to illustrate or warn the results of opposition to his kingdom and the inhabitants in it. He, he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is, is like. Have you ever thrown a party? I don't know if anybody's ever thrown a party. We've thrown a party. Um, maybe you've had a birthday party if you're if you're a kid and and or or an adult. You've had like a dinner party and you've invited guests, right? And you and you invite the people that you really want there, and and so you invite all these people. And maybe there's a few people that you really want to come because you really like them, um, and so you invite them. But when they get the invitation, they say they're not coming. And it really disappoints you. And they give you some excuse. You know, they have something else going on. But then later you find out that they really didn't have anything else going on. And that hurts even deeper. Because I think what we, what we realize at that moment is that person was more important to us than, than we were to them. And we feel rejected and dejected. And it hurts deeply. 
we have a similar situation in, in this parable. Well, it's different in many ways, but in some respects, it's similar to that. The king, um, the God figure in, in the parable today, invites all of his friends to the celebration of his son's wedding, right? And, and when it comes time for the celebration, um, he sends out a servant and, and tells them to, to go tell the guests that the banquet the celebration is ready. You know, the food has been prepared, everything has been decorated. And so these servants go out and they tell the invitees, hey, it's time. Come on, let's, let's celebrate, let's party. And they all say, no, we're not going to go. We're just not going to do it. And the servants come back to the king and report what happened. And he sends out other servants and he says, no, no, go tell him. We are ready to go. Let's, let's do this. I'm ready to celebrate. And again, some of them, it said, the scripture says, go back to their businesses. Others just, just ignore it, say, we're not going. And, and then others go one step further and they seize these servants that the king has sent out and they abuse them and then they kill them, completely rejecting the king's offer. And in response to that, Jesus says that the king sends out his army and he kills those invitees and then he destroys their whole city. But this still leaves the king without guests. And so the king looks to other servants and he says to the servants that are left, hey, I want you to go out into the streets and I, I want you to go to anybody you can find, and I want you to invite them to come, come to this, this celebration that I'm having for my son. Just go out. And the scripture tells us that they go out and they invite the good as well as the bad. So in my mind, I'm thinking they're, they're not just going for the cute little kids and the Sunday school teachers and, um, you know, all these really nice people, the healthcare workers and all these people that just really are doing good things, but they're going for everybody. They they go to the brothels and, and, and they go on the streets and find the addicts and the dealers and the gang members. And they, they find, you know, the thieves and the kind of just despicable delinquents, you know, of society. And they invite them and they invite the really good people as well. Everybody. There's no discriminating. And they, they come. These people actually come to, to the banquet to, to celebrate. Everybody's there. The good and the bad. And then the king comes into the celebration. And in verse 11, when the king enters, he notices in the crowd that there is one person there who doesn't fit. And that, that person is, is present. We don't know if he's good or he's bad, which group he comes from, uh, but he's not dressed appropriately. The scripture says that he's not in wedding clothes. And um, it, it's important to, to, to note, I guess at, at this point, we need to understand that it's not assumed that this person couldn't afford wedding clothes. Um, some scholars, some people who kind of write about the scripture and help us to understand it better, say that um, sometimes when you came to a wedding banquet, wedding clothes were provided for the guests so that they didn't have to provide them themselves. Other commentators said that wedding clothes were just really just like clean clothing. It wasn't anything special, but it was just clean. You, you kind of fixed yourself up and made yourself look more presentable for the celebration. Whatever the case, this man had what he needed. It, it wasn't like it wasn't available. The wedding clothes weren't available to him. They were. And I, I think this is, this is key to understanding this, this part of the, the text. It's not that he was being asked to do something that he couldn't. 
but he refused to do something that he should have done and could have done. And for the king, this is just unacceptable. And so the king comes up to him knowing that this man is refusing to do what he should be doing. And he, he says, I want you to bind this man hand and foot and throw him out into the darkness where there is weeping and, and gnashing of, of teeth, which several weeks ago we, we discussed it is a, um, is a parallel, a symbolic of hell. Um, this was so confusing to me for such a long time. Like, why would the king invite everyone and only to reject some? That just doesn't seem to make sense. It seems to be unfair. That seems to be wrong, right? And, and it certainly doesn't seem to be righteous or good. It seems to be kind of, as I read it in the past, seemed to be some, somewhat arbitrary, right? For the king to reject this one guest just because he didn't have clothing. But, but here's the point. He did have the clothing. He did have access to it. He just chose not to do it. He chose to reject what he was supposed to do and did what he wanted to do. And, and here, here's the thing. Just not being something, like just not being someone else, like someone else who's bad, just not being like them doesn't cut it in the kingdom of heaven. The man without wedding clothes didn't, he wasn't part of that first group that rejected the king's invitation and then went to do their own things or, or even worse, killed the servants that the king had sent. He wasn't part of, of that group. But he still rejected the king in, in effect. You know, he, he, he didn't wear the wedding clothes that he was supposed to wear. He, 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 he was kind of just the same as that first group who rejected the king. To be a participant of the party, one had to accept the invitation, wear the proper attire, and attend the event. In other words, the participant had to submit to the expectations of the king who had called or invited him. And I, I think part of what Jesus was trying to communicate to these Pharisees, to these religious leaders that he was sharing this parable with was that it wasn't good enough for them just not to be Gentiles wasn't good enough for them to just be born as Jews. Wasn't good enough for them just not to be like these other abject rejectors of God's commands and expectations. They had to actually be the part on the outside and the inside in order to be part of the kingdom of heaven. They had to be fully submitted to God in every way, in heart and in action, but they weren't. 
family looked the part, but inside they were actually rejecting God. That's why they were trying to get rid of Jesus. Yesterday, um, I lost a friend, um, a young man that I had, uh, I had mentored for uh, years and years. And um, I came to know him when he was at his lowest. Um, this young man um, was in his teens. He was like 17 or 18 when I, when I got to know him. And he was really struggling. Um, he was an addict. Uh, and um, he, he died yesterday from an overdose. Um, now, I think most people would say when they looked at, at, the, at this young man that um, he was a really bad person. And um, perhaps he was, you know, um, he stole things. He was an addict. He lied and he lied. He hurt his family. He hurt me. But there was one thing that I am sure about with him. And that is during his sobriety and his, his periods of sobriety grew like longer and longer as I knew him. But during his sobriety, he, he surrendered his life to Jesus. It was undeniable. He was on fire for Jesus. He, he, he wanted nothing more than to serve Jesus and to love Jesus and to give all of himself, his addiction, everything that he was to Jesus. He, he was just so in love with Jesus. but he could just never fully shake that addiction. And I think when people, a lot of people just looked at him, they just said, he's just a really bad person. And he's just not a Christian. He is not a Christian. And I think some today would probably think of him and say, he's not in heaven. He's not part of the kingdom. But I know that that couldn't be further from the truth. He is a believer, and he is with Jesus in the kingdom because of that. The, the, reason, the reason he's in the kingdom is not because he was a good person. Um, it's not because he got his life together or that he hung out with certain people. The reason that he is in the kingdom is that he has accepted the invitation of the king. His citizenship in the kingdom of heaven does not revolve around him and what he could do. Rather, it was all tied up in and revolves around the king. And that is exactly what Jesus is getting at in this parable. He sent his servants out and they invited everybody, the good and the bad. And those that came and had and submitted to the king on the wedding clothes and 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 submitted themselves to the king were accepted but if you didn't if you just came and did it on your own terms that was not truly accepting the king's invitation You know, we can come to a service or be part of a community group or give money to a nonprofit or a church but not really submit to God's authority and lordship in our lives. You can do all those things 
and look like the perfect person and still hold on to your life, still hold on to control. And if we do, then we're more like the man at the wedding banquet with the wrong attire than we are the rest of the guests. Likewise, you might be a really bad person struggling with sin. And some sin maybe that seems like it would separate you from God. But yet you have this undeniable compulsion that you just can't explain that is pushing you, making you, driving you to God, to Jesus. If so, that is not your desire or your willpower or your ability as much as it is God's calling of you. Your acceptance by him is not dependent on your goodness or your worthiness, but rather it's a direct result of Jesus and what he has accomplished for you on the cross and him calling you to himself. You see, we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not because of our actions or worthiness, but because God calls us. I, um, I so easily forget that this world doesn't revolve around me. And that my life, um, my hope, my salvation, as we would say, um, my, my going from death spiritually to life is not because of something I have done. It's because I have surrendered my life to Jesus and given him control. I have accepted the invitation. I have accepted the expectations that are on that invitation. And I, by the power of him, am living by him. And because, of, because he is calling me, there's this internal driving force that I, I can't deny that continues, even when I fall away for a time, like continues to pull me back to him. That's not something that I've created on my own. That's the calling of God. I don't know, maybe this morning you've been experiencing that kind of compulsion, that, that pull towards God. You can't explain it. You don't know where it's coming from. You know, like it's not something that you wanted. It's not something that you thought up on your own. It's just this, this undeniable draw that's just pulling you in. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you. That's, that's our God. That's him calling you to himself. Some of us look at that and we say, why me? Like, why not somebody else, you know, who does things better or lives a better life, you know? And I, I don't know. I don't, why me? Why, why Scott? You know, why, why my, my parents? Why them? You know, why, why Jackie? Like, why, why? I, I don't know. But it's something we just, we don't know. But it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not good. If that's you this morning, it's, that is, again, not you. It is God drawing you to himself. And maybe, maybe, maybe you ha have had a relationship with the Lord for a long, long time. And recently, maybe it's because of this virus or 
maybe you've gotten caught up in some sin again. Um, and, and you know that you're not living the way God wants you to live. But there's just this pull, this urge inside of you that just won't let you go no matter how far you stray, no matter how badly you sin. It just keeps drawing you back. That is not because of your goodness and it's not because of anything that you've done. That is God and his hand on you that won't let go. See, our lives don't revolve around us. They revolve around him. It's not about how, how strongly we can hold on to him. It's about how strongly he holds on to us. I, um, this, we were created not just to have comfort and joy and love life. We, we weren't created for us. We were created to bring God glory. And um, we are saved for that same purpose. God calls us out of darkness and into light, and he, he draws us in and gives us this invitation, not just so that we can live comfortable lives, but so that he can be made to look even better and better and better through each life that is saved. But it happens on his terms, not ours. It happens because he invites, not because we invite ourselves. It happens because we submit to him and his expectations and don't try to keep our control of our, our lives. And it happens because we receive the invitation. So today, um, 